Everyone is looking for purpose, for a life that matters, and we want to be a church that helps people find that. This is the Collective Church Podcast from a life-giving and vibrant new church right here in London, Ontario. Here's this past week's message from our pastor, Tyler Fromm. Well, good morning. Welcome to Collective Church. My name is Tyler. I am one of the lead pastors here. We are glad to see you. It is Thanksgiving. So we get to celebrate this weekend and we get to eat tons and tons of turkey and then have incredible naps. That tryptophan will do its job and it is wonderful. We've been in a series called Rooted and this for us is more than a series. It's an initiative. So it's part of what we are doing in our co-groups, which is our version of small groups, our smaller gatherings. And this week, we're talking about suffering, which is perfect for Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving, and we're thankful for suffering. I actually was looking at it, and I was thinking, at first, I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then in God's providence, as I was unpacking it, I started to see some of the intersection of suffering and thanksgiving. And so if you'll track with me, I hope to show you why. Last week, I spoke about how God speaks to us, and and I shared a number of different ways that God speaks. And the one that I didn't get a chance to, to highlight is that sometimes God speaks through our pain. That when we're facing challenging things, sometimes that's when we can hear God's voice the best. I know that's true in my own life. When things are good, when things are easy, sometimes it can be, it can be really easy to settle into complacency or comfort. When things are difficult, it, it, it gets to this place where we're more able to hear God's voice speak through the pain. That's true for me. I was, I was talking in our co-group this week, and I was saying that that's what I've noticed in the season for me. That God has most been able to speak and get my attention in this season through pain. Now, do I enjoy that? No! But am I thankful for it? You better believe it. Before we dig in, I want to pray for us. God, I pray that in these moments that you would be the one that speaks. That it wouldn't be my ideas or my words, but yours. It wouldn't just be information, but instead, God, we surrender to you as you do the mysterious work of transforming us. God, we bring baggage, we bring a week, we bring all sorts of of things into this space. And I don't believe that you ask us to check it at the door. I believe that you ask us to bring it directly to your feet. So that's what we do in these moments. Pray that you would speak to us, that you would draw us close if we're navigating things. Maybe Thanksgiving for us is not a positive thing. Maybe Thanksgiving for us is challenging. Maybe Thanksgiving is a celebration. Whatever we're going through right now, you see us individually, not just us all together, and you love us and you know us. Draw us closer. Help us to see you. Show up in this space that is in a way that is undeniably you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to engage with a passage of scripture that is found in the book of James, the book of James. Now, there are some books that are, that the, the, the name of the book is a name, and it's not written by this 
author, but most scholars believe that the one who wrote James was also named James. And most people believe that James was also the half-brother of Jesus. So same mother, Jesus' dad was God. James' dad wasn't God, it was Joseph, half-brother. Now, what you have to understand, like, first, can you imagine being (laughs) Jesus' brother? Like sibling rivalry or comparison or, like, we used to have this running joke in our family where I would go up to my mom and I'd go, my sister, Lindsay, I'd be like, she's your favorite. And my sister would go, yep, she's my favorite. And then my sister, or 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 my mom would go, she's my favorite. My sister would go to my mom and go, he's your favorite, isn't he? And she'd go, yeah, he's my favorite too. We were both her favorites. In this case, if it's Jesus, he's the favorite. He's just the favorite. You're just lower on the tiers. Now, there's some things that are interesting about James that help us to understand and I think give us weight to what he's saying. The first is that um, James actually didn't follow Jesus while he was alive. That James did not follow Jesus, which, now we can go spiritual and we can go, well, I would, I would, of course I would know it was Jesus. But if our brother or sister, if our sibling said, I'm God, and I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die and rise again. It would be understandable for us to go, I am a little skeptical of this. (laughs) And so James is looking, and he's hearing, and he's seeing Jesus, and he's listening to his words, and he's walked, lived with him, and, and he hasn't made the decision to follow Jesus until something significant happens. Jesus goes, and he's crucified. He's put up on a cross, and he suffocates and dies. And then three days later, he rises again. He is dead. And three days later, he is alive. And James sees that and goes, he is everything he said he was. James follows his brother. James gives his life to be part of this church that Jesus has established in his building. Now, if you're ever wondering if the resurrection if you can prove the resurrection, let this be a small part of that. If it wasn't true, it would make very clear sense for his brother, who didn't follow him before, to not follow him after. But if it was true, it would make sense that this brother of his who did not follow Jesus and believe he was who he said he was, after seeing him alive, after he was dead, gave his life. That makes sense. And you start to see, okay, the resurrection happened. It happened and was so transformative, it actually caused a brother to follow his brother and believe that he was the Son of God. And so James becomes this pillar of the church, the early church, and writes part, this book, James, and writes, writes scripture to the church and to us. And so I want us to, to look at this passage in James. James verse or chapter 1, verse 2 to Four. It says this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. You see that first little section? 
Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, I say this, and it's important that we get this in our head, it's when, not if. It's not if troubles are going to come, it is when. And it's not the troubles that we deem as significant or we compare to someone else going, well, what I'm going through isn't as difficult as them. No, it's any troubles that they will come. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. What? Okay, so everything is difficult, my life is hard, I'm facing suffering, and I should have joy? Like I'm actually supposed to offer thanksgiving, be thankful when I suffer? Let's be honest, that does not make sense. That does not make logical sense. I don't know if you're one of these families. We were talking about this in the first service, and, and uh, you know you watch TV shows, and it kind of informs our life. And so you watch families for Thanksgiving, and they sit around, and they're like, let's talk about what we're thankful for. I've never done that in my family, and I don't know, maybe it'd be great, maybe it'd be awkward, but you watch it on TV. So imagine, you're around this table, and it's like, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for family. And you're like, yes, family. Family's the greatest. I'm thankful for friends. Yeah, friends. And then someone is like, I am so thankful that I'm suffering. You'd be going, are they okay? Or you'd go, you're just being sarcastic, right? Eh, thank you for letting me suffer. <laughs> right? It would be hard for you to go, oh, no, this person is insincere. Why? Because, because that doesn't make sense to us. We have this way of looking at things, and we go, how can trouble, how can suffering possibly lead to joy? Which reminds us of something so significant about the Christian faith. Christianity is not an option. It is an alternative. The kingdom of God, what God is trying to establish through his people, is opposite and different and in many times counterintuitive to how we think of things. So God looks at suffering and he says, suffering is an opportunity for joy. We go, that doesn't make sense. And he goes, that's right. It's not supposed to make sense with your mind. It's supposed to be opposite. It's supposed to look different than what you experience. It's supposed to cause people to go, that is a unique alternative to what I experience. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. That one word for me stands out. Consider an opportunity. It's an opportunity. You, you look at suffering and it can be an opportunity for us to experience, like James is saying, joy. Or it's an opportunity for us to experience bitterness, anger, frustration, to, to live in this place. And we have opportunities for how we will allow it to be used. The truth is, we cannot control what we face. I don't, I don't know if you know that. As we navigate 20-some months of COVID, like, we cannot control what we face. Right? But we can control the perspective that we have on it. There's this book called uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek, and I love using it with our team, and I think it's so impactful because it says that if you understand why, it causes you to have motivation and a different perspective on what you're facing. 
If you understand why, then you're able to look at what you're doing or the way that you're sacrificing or the way that things even at times are, are hurting in the short term. You understand what that means long term. And we see our why in this next verse. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. I don't know how long you've been following Jesus or how old you are. I'm, I'm 35, I turn 36 at the end of the month. And I follow Jesus most of my life and I'm learning something. And I'm learning that uh, my life is not getting easier. It's not getting simpler. It's actually getting more difficult and more complex in most ways. Now, maybe you're like, oh man, my life just keeps getting easier and maybe we need to learn from you. But I look at my life and I see as I follow Jesus, the more that I follow Jesus, the more aware, of I, uh, the more aware I am of my need for him and my brokenness and, and the things in me that I'm like, that's not good, that's not right. That's, the, more, the more that I, I even find, I, I go, okay, I see you saying this, but I kind of want to live like this and I'm more aware of the tension and I feel the difficulty differently. It has not gotten easier. But what I have noticed is that my God-given endurance, my God-given capacity to handle some of those things has increased. Now notice what I'm saying. I'm not saying my own ability. It's not like, well, I figured this out. I became a professional Christian and then I was good. No, God, as I allowed him to actually use those challenges to shape me, increased my capacity, increased my endurance over the long haul. The truth is that this God-given, this gift of endurance, cannot develop without experiencing testing. If we want to develop endurance, the idea that we run and we go far and we last and we finish well, it requires testing. We want to have a faith that has endurance. I don't know if you're in the room and, and you're strange like Todd and Joel. I don't know. But Todd and Joel love running, which I think is weird, especially when there's snow on the ground. And they're like, you know what I want to do? Put on my tights and go run in this. <laughs> now, I respect it and them immensely. I just don't get it. I'm like, I'm good inside with the heat on. Like, I'm good with that. I have a little, I have a little gym that's in a building separate from our house. We have like a little converted garage. And I turn the heater on. I don't go outside with battle ropes and go, yeah, this is great. But maybe you love running. Maybe you're like, I love running. You know something about running. Whether, whether, whether you know running or not, you know that if you just start running, you don't set out to run a marathon that week. If someone said to you, like, you know, it's January 1st. I'm making a difference in my life. I'm going to change. I'm running a marathon this week. You're like, have you ever run before? No. How are you going to do that? I don't know. I'm going to figure it out. It would be strange, right? We go, I think you're going to die. <laughs> like, it's not going to be good. Why? Because over time, someone that is running needs to build their endurance. And it starts with small runs, and then it increases, and it increases, and it increases, and suddenly in that process, the capacity to run further develops. The same is true in our spiritual life. And we have moments that we go, I want to be 75 and following Jesus. That's for me. I want, I want to end. I, hopefully I'm not 75 when I die. I want to be, 
95 and be still following Jesus and have run that race well with endurance. But when I follow Jesus for the first time or the 50th time, when I follow him and surrender to him, it didn't just somehow I go, now I'm good. Like when you first come to Jesus, you do not have the endurance to run that full race. It develops over time. As we let God test us, as we let God challenge us, as we let God use things that are difficult to shape us, we build our endurance for the long haul. Some of us want to shortchange that process. Some of us wish it happened quickly, or some of us wish that somehow we could train for, with endurance or for endurance without actually suffering at all, without, without actually facing any kind of testing or challenging. It's important for us to know that this testing, that these troubles, they develop that endurance in us. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Notice that first little bit, for you know. There seems to be this reminder, and even as I was reading from a few commentaries, where it's like, you know this. Like as a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a decent length of time, you know this to be true. You look at your life and you look at where you are. I look at my life at 35 versus 25 and I go, man, I have grown so much because God has used all the things I didn't want to deal with to shape me and increase my endurance. You know that this is true. You know that growth in your faith does not come when things are good. It often comes when things are hard and challenging and frustrating. And when you experience challenge, it can deepen your faith. When you suffer, it can be a catalyst. It can be a catalyst to closeness with God, or it can be a catalyst to distance from God. When we suffer, it is difficult. It is not easy. It does not always make sense. We have questions. We have wrestles. That There are, there are all sorts of things that that we don't know how to make sense of all of it. The truth is when we're really suffering, really dealing with something difficult, there are no easy answers. There's nothing that someone could say that you go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm good. It doesn't work like that. And yet we sometimes think it works like that. When we're talking to other people, we're like, hey, but Tyler said on Sunday, like, oh, the suffering, it's going to lead to growth. That might be true. And it is. But it doesn't mean it's always helpful. Like when someone is navigating challenging things sometimes, I'd say lots of times, and maybe I'll just go lots of times for me, I just need to cut, like shut my mouth more. And instead of feeling the pressure to say the right things and to just use words with people, instead to be fully present with them. You ever notice how much of a commodity being present is right now? Like it's hard for us to be present. I mean, you go to a restaurant and you see people and they're on, like, it's a date night where they're supposed to be connecting and what are they doing? I don't even have my phone. They're looking at their phone. And they're like, huh, I didn't know Rob Lowe was in that many movies. <laughs> right? And you're like, oh yeah, that's really good for relationships. I, like, I'm clumsy and so I keep my phone in my pocket while I'm walking and I don't text, but I see it all the time. You go around and people are constantly doing it. I do it with my kids. Here my kids are trying to get my attention and I'm too busy looking at some random stupid thing on Google because I'm curious about the answer. Or I'm seeing, like, I'm checking whatever, whatever has got my attention and I'm not present. 
For us, that presence is so significant. It is so significant for us to be reminded that we can be present. I want to remind us pastorally what our role is when someone else is suffering. Our role is to be there and to represent that God is close. Our ability or our our invitation is to cry when people are crying. I think about my kids and when they're crying. I learned uh, that I would have to do laundry a lot more when we had kids. We have a a six-year-old, or almost six-year-old, almost four-year-old. And um, if you have little kids, you know, like, you start to develop. There's, like, snot on almost all my shirts right around here. Here and here. Why? Because when they're heartbroken and they're hurting and they're struggling, I don't go over to them and go, you're fine now. You're good. Oh, you're crying? Move along. No, I say, come here. And I wrap my arms around them and I get them close and I get their tears and their snot and their mess all over me and do it gladly. Why? Because I'm their dad who loves them so much. And God sees us the same way, but sometimes he uses us to be the one wrapping our arms around someone else. Some of us are walking around and we got really nice clean shoulders because we haven't been around anyone who's crying and weeping and struggling and suffering. And listen, like I know it's COVID, but what if we were a church that actually got snot all over us? Like what if we were known as the people that when someone was suffering, we didn't say just nice thoughts, but we were there present with our arms around them saying, I'm with you. I'm hurting because you're hurting. There are no easy answers. There's no simple solution. I'm with you. I am present. We get to represent a God who is present by being present with people. We get to be close with people. And it's important for us to understand in that we are not trying to rush people. We're not looking and going, if you could just clean yourself up, that would be great. Like, think about when people are crying. If people are crying, either they go, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't be crying. Uh, and like, have, has anyone ever said that? And have you ever gone, you're right. <laughs> you're the worst. I can't believe you're crying. You're feeling sad, smarten up. No. And yet our first reaction is, well, get the Kleenex. Well, what are we communicating? I was reading some, some articles that were talking about the psychological effect. We're communicating, um, dry your eyes and move on. And so we're pushing people and rushing people. You know what? We don't really want to sit there in that moment. Really, we want you to just be better. How harmful is that? I don't do that with my kids. Why would we do that with people? We're not trying to rush. We're going, hey, it's okay. You feel the pain. You feel all of what you're feeling. I am here with you. Some of it is that we've lost this theological concept. It's called lament. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's all lamenting. And lamenting is this beautiful thing that I hope at some point we can really dig in. But lamenting is this actual process of mourning. And it's not quick. It's not meant to just be, I lamented for 37 hours on this one week and now I'm good. It's a process and it's longer and it's drawn out. And there was this beautiful thing when I was, when I was looking at it that I, I love, this picture that it was 
Lament represents prayer in the meantime. In between the pain that has been caused, the suffering, and when everything is all better, lamenting is in the meantime. And so often we find ourselves in the meantime. What if we actually embrace that as a place that God wants to meet with us? And lamenting isn't about going, everything's awful, but now everything's awesome and I'm great. It's about being honest and being willing to trust God. It's tension. Trust God and feel all of it. Be close to him and yet feel all of it. Lamenting. And I think part of the impact of that is it's been massive because we've lost the ability to lament and then people don't know what to do with all their pain. They don't know what to do with their suffering. They don't know what to do with their troubles. We see people walk away from their faith and one of the places where we notice it is in this. People suffer. People have unanswered prayers. People see suffering. People face challenges and they go, God cannot possibly love me. And so I just need to walk away. Clearly God is not who he said that he is. But what if there's an invitation and a deeper invitation, even in the midst of the meantime? Like even when you look at challenges in your life, it's so easy for us to say as Christians, I trust God when things are good. It's a lot more difficult to say I trust God when things aren't good, when things are challenging, when things are difficult, when I am struggling, when I feel, when I feel like I, I don't know how to make sense of all of this. That is where it is difficult and when it is hard, when I don't get what I want, when people let me down, when I lose someone early, when we face illnesses or challenges, that's where you go, this is hard. It's hard to trust God when I feel all of this. And the truth is, like James is talking about, that those moments are moments for us to see, where's my faith at? Well, what's the level of my faith? What's my endurance like? That there is a diagnostic element of that. And then more than just the internal diagnostic element, every time we face challenges, people are watching. People that are not Christians are watching those of us that are Christians. And they're wondering... Do you believe what you say you believe? Do you look different than I do? Does your response to pain and suffering actually reflect something different? And so people are watching us. And I want you to understand that they're not just watching us for our momentary response. They're watching us over the long haul. There's something powerful about our witness as we proclaim to follow Jesus over the long haul. So the, the reality of dealing with suffering and challenges or even this that we face troubles and experience joy, that's not a quick process. It's not like, well, by this week, I'll be good. I mean, we sometimes talk like it is, but that's not the case. And so we have people that are watching us going over the long haul. What does that look like? Eugene Peterson talks about it, the, the long obedience in the same direction. It, it's, it's this long process of how do you respond to trouble and challenges over the long haul? Do you move closer to God or do you move away? And, and I want to be clear that even in talking that, that this, this is not one of those things where you go, um, you just need to go, I'm good now. I have joy. And you're like, you don't look like you have any joy. I do! I'm very joyful right now! 
It's not about faking it till you make it. It's not about being calloused and pretending like we don't have feelings, like we don't have pain, like we aren't legitimately struggling with something that is beyond us. I do not want us to think that we just need to suck it up and move, it up, move along or, or get to this place where I just, have to, I just have to fake it till I make it. I'll be fine. I want you to look at David of David and Goliath as a great example of this. David, who wrote many of the Psalms, he would spend the early part of the Psalms and it would typically look something like this. Why is this happening? And then he'd be like, kill my enemies. They're the worst. You ever felt that? That coworker that you're like, you're the worst. Don't. I'm like, I'm not supposed to say it, but internally I think God smite them. Not really, but kind of, just maim them. Right? David actually says that. Internal dialogue, David actually writes it for us to see. And we see these beautiful psalms where David is crying out and expressing and feeling all the pain and the reminder that we can actually bring it all to God. All of it. That God's not going, hey, uh, sort yourself out and then come to me. He's going, no, 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 no. Bring all of it. All the stuff you're like, I can't say that. He's like, he already knows it anyway, so bring it to him. Allow him to actually be invited into that space. And if you look at David, you see this pattern. He cries out, and he says all these things, and he says some stuff that you're like, oh, that's dark. And then, and then he moves through this where he is realigning his vision with God. And near the end of most of those psalms, he says, but, I, but I'll trust you again. I see you, and I trust you again. Now, we look at those psalms. Some of them are really short, short little poems. And we're like, okay, so this process is really quick. Like, I just, this is why we lose lament, because we're like, I just need to get to that. Some of those psalms are written over, over years, 10 years, long periods of time of wrestling and tension. And so let, let's not think that we just somehow need to rush that process. It, it's important for us to understand and be reminded that God is in control and that we are not. That means we are not in control of the timing. It means we're not in control of all of the healing. It means we are part of that process. One of the things that I notice that Christians say, we have certain like Christianese in, in language that we say certain things that aren't theologically accurate. One of them is God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever heard that or said that? God will never give you more than you can handle. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's not true. It's not theologically accurate and it's not true. The truth is not. God will never give you more than you can handle. Here's the truth. God will never give you more than he can handle. You see the difference there? See, if you think God will never give me more than I can handle, when you hit the points and they happen, where you go, I'm at the end of myself, you'll go, I'm a failure. I'm a failure. Instead of going, I'm at the end of myself, he's enough. I don't have to try to do it. I don't have to have enough. I don't have to just grip my teeth and go, you got to try harder. I can actually go to him and surrender and go, I'm bringing all of it, all my garbage, all my frustration directly to your feet because you are enough, that you can handle this, that you are not surprised, that you are not looking and going, oh man, whoa, too much for me. Because the truth is there are times it's too much for me. We take the pressure off of ourselves to somehow believe that it's us and instead put it back on God who is able, who's able to actually shoulder that burden, the burden that we can't shoulder. When we look at suffering, 
rather than us getting to this place where we try to tell ourselves things that maybe momentarily make us feel good, or rather than feeling this pressure of going, I just need to move to joy and thanksgiving, I want to suggest to you that we have two choices when we face suffering. We can choose to believe that God is close, and we can take a step toward him. And let's be honest, there are moments that that step is like a pinky, just like one little very, very baby step. We can choose to do that, or we can choose to believe that God is far, and we can take a step back. We can choose to move closer and let our suffering and our troubles draw us closer to God, or we can choose to let us let it drive a wedge deeper. I want to suggest to you that moving closer to God, just even a little bit, is so significant and exactly what will offer you hope that you can't make sense of. As you bring all your stuff and go, I'm angry and I'm disappointed. You let me down. But I'm going to have this conversation with you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to yell. And then over time, you begin to to just surrender just a tiny bit, just a little bit. And you ask all the questions, God, why? Why is this happening? And some of the questions God answers. Some of the questions he doesn't. But he's near and he's close in the unanswered questions. And he's in the tension. And in that moment, we choose, we go, I'm going to choose deepening surrender and trust in you. There's a, a, famous, a famous person, that, famous Christian, that, that I look at, and as I was preparing this, I, I just couldn't help. I kept thinking about him, and his name is Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford. He, uh, he, in 1871, he was a lawyer, and so he had a, a, a law firm in, uh, or a lawyer's office in Chicago. In 1871, they had uh, the Great Chicago Fire, massive fire. Killed tons of people and ruined lots of buildings, lots of architecture. And Horatio Spafford lost his, all his business, and he lost his four-year-old son. Now, can you imagine? Like, that looks like suffering to me. That looks like trouble. If you lose your livelihood and you lose one of your kids, that would be heartbreaking. Two years later, 1873, he's about to go on an adventure from from the U.S. to the U.K. He's going to go with this guy named D.L. Moody, who's a famous Christian who was going there to do an evangelistic campaign. He was going to tell people about Jesus. And Horatio Spafford is going, I'm going to go with you, and I want to bring my whole family. Four girls and one, and one wife. The six of them are going to go in a boat and across the ocean to get to the U.K. Last minute, Horatio has some issue, and he can't make that boat trip. So he says, you go without me and I'll meet you there. His wife and four kids, four girls, they go on their boat and in the middle of the ocean, they crash into another ship and the the ship sinks. He gets a telegram from his wife saying, I'm the only one alive. Like, man, you go all those things, you know, you can get certain text messages or or emails or voicemails or whatever that that can ruin your day. I mean, you get a telegram like that, a message like that. I, I, can't even, I can't even imagine. So now he's lost all of his children, his business, livelihood, 
And in some of it, too, he's like, I'm doing good God's work. And so he gets in a boat, and he is getting ready to go and meet his heartbroken wife where she is. And, and he hits this point, and, and God starts to work in him. And he gets to a, a point in the ocean where it's close to where his daughter's lives were taken. And he begins to feel inspired, and he writes some words that maybe you've heard before, that when you understand the context are even more powerful, it's this, this famous hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. If you've been around church for any length of time, maybe you've heard that hymn, but not understood the context to the person who is writing it. This is not someone who's writing and going, it is well because things are good. It is well with my soul because my life is easy. I'm healthy and wealthy. This is someone who is writing this and inspired to write these words in the midst of darkest, deepest anguish, all the pain, all the frustration, all the loss, all the suffering, and yet this is his response. It's powerful to me because I think this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to have the perspective that God does on all of our troubles and suffering. These words are so significant and impactful Horatio had an opportunity to choose. Am I going to choose to move towards God or away from God? And I think in this moment even, he believed again this, the, the words found in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. It takes an enormous, huge amount of faith to believe that this is true. To believe that God is actually close when we are suffering. This is why this passage in James is so significant. And why James says, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. I want to let you know that when he's talking about that, when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. That does not fully happen on this side of heaven. That we get close to that point through the rest of our life, and then we experience full fulfillment of that when we are with God. But all along the way, God wants to work and shape. So let it Grow. Let your faith and your endurance grow. See, I want us to have a resilient faith. I mean, I want to have a resilient faith. I want to have a lasting faith. I want to have a consistent faith. I don't want the faith that goes like mountaintop to valley to mountaintop to valley to, I don't know, this is good this week, it's horrible next week. I want a faith that lasts. I want to be, I want to be old and have a great marriage that, where we both love Jesus and kids that love Jesus and grandkids that love Jesus. I want lasting faith. But that does not happen accidentally, and it does not happen when things are easy. It happens over 
time and over consistent, over, as things are consistent with consistency. I mean, think about any kind of relationship. Like we say it sometimes where you go, following Jesus, not a religion, it's a relationship. We have a relationship. Through Jesus, we have a relationship with God. But sometimes we forget to frame it like it's a relationship. I mean, think about a wedding. Hopefully we've all been at a wedding and you go to a wedding and you're looking and the bride and groom, like they look the best they've ever looked. Like there are sometimes you go and you're like, I don't think, I did not think he could look like that. <laughs> His neck beard's gone. He's not wearing sweatpants. Or you look at the girl and you're like, man, that professional makeup artist did a phenomenal job. She looks beautiful. I mean, it'd be weird if you're like, she's, I don't know how, like that, I, I don't know that I've ever thought that. But this is this beautiful moment we get to celebrate that's the, that's the peak in some ways of, of presentation. Marriage is so beautiful. Look at this. But that moment is not where the deepest and, and sustaining parts of marriage come from. It comes from the battles and the fights and the consistency over time. The growth in a marriage is not when things are good and easy. It's often when it's difficult and where you're looking at each other going, am I in? Am I actually committed? Are you actually committed? Am I willing or am I trustworthy? Can you trust me? Am I safe? Am I committed to you forever? That, that's where it actually grows. Or think about friendships. Like maybe you're like, I'm not married, so I guess theoretically I understand. Think about your best friendships. Your closest friends, they're not people that just show up and ask how it's going. Hey, how's it going? Good. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. See you later. No, they're the people that have walked through the challenges with you. They're the people that have, you've gone through the fire with. Like one of my oldest friends, he's not here today, but he's part of the church, James. He, he and I have been friends for 20-something years. That has not always been rosy. I, I've had some really hard things I had to deal with with my family, with with. Uh, all sorts of challenges through my life that he has been consistent in, that he's shown himself to be trustworthy in, or he lost his dad and we navigated together. There was consistency over time. Trust was developed over time. And I grew, and I trust him so much more now than I did when I was 12 and I met him. Like there are things along the way. The same is true for us in our relationship with God. Our trust grows and is deepened as we see that God can be trusted. In the moments where we face challenges and we wonder, can this ever work or is God actually here? Is God, does God actually care? And he shows himself to be trusted over and over again. And maybe that timeline doesn't always fit what you want, where I want God to show that I can trust him like a microwave. I want it to be in a minute. I want to know immediately. And God's going, hey, let's actually think like a slow cooker here. Let's go longer periods where you see over time that you can trust me, but keep walking closer. The truth is that even as we're navigating that, sometimes it takes every single little bit of faith that we have even left to muster to even take that step, to even just trust him just a little bit, just a tiny bit which is why this community is so important. Because as we are present with people that are suffering and we remind them that God is close, we represent that personified. 
We actually get to be the people that represent a God who is close, near those who are brokenhearted, near those who are struggling, who are who are struggling, who feel crushed. We get to represent that. So even as someone just takes like a baby step and says, I'm gonna trust God, even in that for them to, to lean in to community. Have you ever noticed, like when you're struggling, you can do, you can either go lean into community or away from community, and you choose which community it is. Do you lean into the community that goes, um, I'm with you and God is too, or do you lean into the community that goes, uh, God is a lie and he doesn't love you and doesn't care about you? Do you lean into the people that build your faith or the people who don't build your faith? I mean, we want to be the kind of community that we go, listen, I know All you have is that pinky bit of a a next taking a step towards God. I know it, but I believe for you, and I'm with you, and I'm going to walk with you. And our arms are linked up, and we're close, doing this together. You are not alone. When we face suffering, when we face challenges, when we face troubles, we have two options. We can move towards God and believe that he's close, or we can move away from God and believe that he is far. I want to let you know, I do not want to ever minimize what you're going through. Even in in this moment, maybe in this room or online, you go, I'm dealing with so many difficult things. I I don't ever want to go, that's fine, just move on. I just want to plead with you, whether you're facing something right now, whether you just came out of something, you're about to go into something, wherever you're at, I want to plead with you, when you suffer, when you face troubles, when you face challenges, just step toward God. Don't back away from him, just move closer. Surround yourself with some people who will help you to do that. Just take a a small step toward him. Don't back away from him. He is close. I know that to be true. If you don't believe me, look at Horatio Spafford, who experienced all that he did and still was able to say, it is well with my soul. Over the long haul, God can be trusted. I want to give an invitation for people in the room or people watching online, so I want to encourage you to, to respond physically. So if you would just close your eyes for a moment. If you are in the room, or if you're online and you are suffering right now, if you're online and you are struggling and you feel like you're at the precipice of my opportunity, do I choose to go closer to God or away from God? If you're struggling, if you're in pain, if you're in trouble, if you're online right now, I want you to reach out to the prayer team and click that prayer button. If you're in the room and right now you go, I am suffering, I would love to encourage you to just with your eyes closed, put your hand up so we can pray for you. I see those hands. I want to pray for us. I want you to know that when we respond with our physical posture, that God sees that. That God actually sees us taking a step. That's a step. That's a big step. And I'm proud of every single one of you who did. I want to pray for us. God, for those of us in the room or online that are suffering, that are challenged, that are facing trouble, that are in this place of of struggle, God, I pray that you would surround them with people that love them and point them to you, that you would wrap your loving arms around them, that you would give them the ability to to cry and weep with others, to know that they are not alone, that you are close, that we are close. God, speak through this pain. Do what you need to do, but more than anything, bring peace and hope 
that surpasses understanding. God, we love you so much and cannot, cannot thank you enough for the reality that you are close and you invite us to wrap our loving arms around others. God, thank you. We love you. Amen. If you'd like more information on Collective Church, find us on social media at This Is Collective Church or reach us on our website, collectivechurch.ca. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you Sunday.